0: Hi, I'm James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. I just finished speaking with Norman Olher about his new book, Blitzed, Drugs in the Third Reich. This book was published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in 2017. Olher shows how the Nazi elite embraced methamphetamine as a wonder drug, free of the connotations of the disease and degeneracy associated with the drug culture of the Weimar years. Stimulants became a valuable tool in Germany's wartime arsenal. The German military acknowledged the value of amphetamines and distributed Pervitin en masse. Olger argues amphetamines allowed the Wehrmacht to defeat the Allies in France and elsewhere during the Blitzkrieg years of 1939-1941. to These gains were short-lived, however, as Nazi Germany's Faustian bargain with drugs eroded away during the Battle of Stalingrad and in the distant steppes of the Soviet Union research for ever more powerful drug combinations were desperately sought to save the Reich from annihilation, exposing the horrors of the regime from experiments on concentration camp prisoners to drug child soldiers. Blitz details how Hitler's personal physician, Dr. Theo Morrell, administered vitamin concoctions and hormone injections common to athletic doping, Although Hitler had promised to cleanse the nation of illness and drug abuse, He himself became utterly dependent on drugs to survive. Military defeat and destruction took their toll on Nazism embodied, and Morel increasingly looked towards methamphetamine and oxycodone to keep Hitler awake and alert during the last apocalyptic years of the Reich. It was a pleasure to talk to Norman, and I hope you enjoy the show. Norman, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to speak to you. Okay, so um, as is sort of typical with new books, um, I want to ask you, how did you become or decided to become a his- historian and and uh, why why drugs in the third reich of of all uh subjects to focus on
1: well it was rather a coincidence because i'm a born and bred and passionate novelist so i tend to invent things um and 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 make them credible uh but this time uh, a friend of mine told me about the uh, drug abuse in nazi germany and he was uh, he is a History buff and also a drug buff. He's a he's a DJ in a Berlin uh, underground club. So I, I took his his word kind of seriously and uh, or at least um, it was a good idea to write my next novel about um, about the drug scene in Nazi Germany. And uh, but when I started researching, I found out that uh, it, uh, that the subject would be dealt better with in a nonfiction book. So I kind of uh, started this journey as uh, uh, this journey of writing
0: a a historical uh, nonfiction book. Cool, interesting. Um, yeah, you mentioned that at the end of the book on how you uh, came up with that idea. That's yeah, no, that's fascinating. W- what do you think? Um, do you think your work as a novelist has affected the book in, in how you constructed it in any way, or do you think that that you approached it, you know, kind of more? Um, as As like a non fiction piece, because the book is amazing in the fact that it is it's written for uh like a wide audience it's not sort of a typical academic monograph but it has these sort of uh bits and pieces that you would find in you know in any any high level academic history book
1: well, my attempt was to um research in an academic way or or um Write an academic book, but use a style that would that would please me and would please my audience. So I I, I probably took the 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 ability my 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 novelist ability in regards to my writing style uh, in order to make this book um, readable to as many people as possible. Because in fact, when I decided to go on this journey to write a nonfiction historical book, I started reading a couple of quite successful um historical books and uh by german authors but also by by an english author and i found them extremely hard to read mm-hmm. i don't want to say boring but because it's not boring but certainly hard to read uh harder to read than i imagined and um i thought it does not necessarily have to be the case um in regards to structure however I worked very closely with the German historian Hans Mommsen, um, who advised me on how to build um, the certain parts uh, of the book. Uh, it has four large parts, and um, so I, I think when it came to structuring, I, I was I was um, I was very much influenced by how a historical um, nonfiction book sh- should be structured.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I thought it was incredibly successful. Um, the way you structured the book. Thank you. Um. Yeah, just just one more biographical thing. Uh, do you think that that um this subject's writing there there hasn't been a lot of writing in English about drugs in the Third Reich? I mean, there has been a, a few books, um, you know, here or there, but it, there hasn't really been. Very many um, dedicated monographs. Do you do you think that th- this was like the time to write this, or did it just come out, um, you know, just j- just haphazardly? Do you do you think that like we're prepared? There's enough historical distance from the time period for a book like this to come out and us to sort of accept drug um, abuse in in uh, you know authoritarian societies critically.
1: I think. The book could not have been written much earlier because the historical school or, or style of um, dealing with the Third Reich um, developed over time, developed over the decades, and it would have been weird if it would have started with a drug abuse uh, because obviously it had to start with, with different different angles uh, we had to we had to, historians had to look at had had to had to examine ways of understanding what happened and why it happened and um i can understand that historians in the seventies eighties and and maybe even nineties would not focus on drugs because they would focus on on different things they would focus on economy on ideology on on more quote unquote serious ways of explanation or of of narrative uh, technique and um i think it really did uh, i i think that time was was needed to, to that distance uh, was needed i'm i'm a third in germany we say uh third generation uh, author because mm-hmm. my parents are second generation and obviously their parents are first generation which were the active generation during that time so maybe the second generation was not was not able to to look at at drugs because maybe they for once didn't understand really what drugs are mm-hmm. or they would they might have thought that drugs are not a serious enough angle to explain certain things um but i i think the time really is uh, is ripe for uh examining that angle and uh, Hopefully, also examining the, using that angle on on other topics as well, not just the sure. Third Reich.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Uh, some of my own work, I I recently uh, looked at uh, drug prohibition in the United States, and it's amazing. Uh, this historiography is all from the last ten years. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's things have been written before, but you know, um, mm-hmm. people taking it seriously and taking the the um, the, the cultural history aspect of it. Is is very very recent, and I, I think uh, I think you're right. I think that your book came out at the right time, and it, it would have been pretty hard to write it the way that you did, at least you know, ten years ago, which which makes it very fresh and and a very interesting read, of course. Um, so let's let's dive into the book and and just sort of talk about sure um, why why. Hmm. Uh, So one of the first things that you talk about is in the book, in the 1920s, and you talk about the drug culture of Germany in the 1920s and how that gets associated with sort of social disorder and danger and uh, ill health, but also in the mind, in the Nazi mind, it gets associated with uh, anti-Semitism. Can you talk a little bit about that connection and and sort of framing Mm. uh, the world of the 1920s
1: Well, the 1920s witnessed the first democracy on German soil. It was called the Weimar Republic. Um, Germany, coming out of a lost First World War, was a struggling um, society. The economy was quite bad. Um, There was a lot of chaos on the street. There were street fights between the 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 extreme left, the communists, and the extreme right, the Nazis. the mainstream democratic establishment was not very strong. Berlin, as this big city, the capital, um, was considered something of a crazy and unrulable town. Um, the policing was not very strong. Um, experimentation was 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 quite uh, was 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 en vogue uh, also experimenting with drugs was was quite normal back then um drugs were not stigmatized um, they were not called poisons yet uh, in German we have that word rauschgifte which the Nazis coined, which means inebriating poisons in weimar republic they weren't called poisons they were just called substances um, and this weimar republic uh was hated by the nazis um goebbels. The main propaganda A figure of the Nazi movement called it the as uh, asphalt as as that makes sense the cement the cement society mm-hmm. the street society mm-hmm. um, and the Nazis basically didn't like anything that couldn't be couldn't be put into order at least that's what they claimed so that the Weimar Republic with with all its chaotic uh, ways of and, and different ways of experimenting with how a civil society uh, could function was uh, was 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 being uh, uh fought against uh by the nazi movement and um they are, f- from early on they said the weimar Republic is being dominated by jews um the jews at the time obviously were still in uh, an important part of the German society. So many intellectuals were Jewish. Uh, academic, many academics were Jewish. Um, so Berlin, the Berlin life, I, I guess you could you could say that it was strongly influenced by the German Jewish uh, community. Um, and the Nazis um, said that this is a bad thing, and they they said that these these Jewish um, these Jewish Germans are um bad for the German society, and they connected them quite quickly to drugs. they said there's one um there's one propaganda sentence that comes to my mind now speaking about the nervous Jewish character who's obviously in need of morphine to calm his uh his nervous uh, mindset um so the Nazis quickly um combined uh, their um, fight against drugs with their fight against Jews. So their anti-drug policy, which then later turns into something completely different, which we will speak about later on, uh, is early on connected with their anti-Semitic policy. Um, both Jews and drugs are poison, uh, poison that needs to be uh, extracted from the, German, the healthy German uh, body.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting too. Is um, you mentioned it, when you're talking about the 1920s, you talk about the big, uh, what we call big pharma today, uh, Merck and, and some of the other uh, German, uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, pharmaceutical companies. And, and you mentioned this this thing that's really interesting little tidbit. And there's so many great tidbits in this book. Uh, some relating to capitalism, some relating to you know just just um, you know, mm-hmm. mentalities regarding drugs. And, and you mentioned the fact that uh, in Merck used to import lots and lots of uh, opium from China in the 20s. It wasn't in the 19, as much in the 19th century. It was really in the 20s when this oh. stuff got really big. And then you mentioned the fact that even in the 20s, uh, the Chinese were, um, you know, bootlegging labels with the Merck logo on it because Merck had the most, you know, pure... Um, opium or heroin and it's just it's it's interesting um in this book you, you there's a sort of prehistory of big pharma that sort of begins at this time mm. and it's all relating to in- intoxicating substances. Mm. <laughs> well this was actually an advice
1: by Hans moms the great German historian he said to me look at where the German drug producing actually comes from and I think it starts in um, in the early nineteenth century, uh, when a young chemist called Saturna um isolates the alkaloid in the poppy uh plant uh which is which we now know of as morphine. So he was able to to find out that the active ingredient in the in the poppy plant the poppy flower is is um, um is morphine, and uh, that is kind of the. Um, from from then on, um, before that, opium was they, they was being produced in in various uh, uh, qualities. Sometimes it was much stronger than other times. And but once Saturna was was finished with his work, um, German um, pharmacies were able to produce uh, a reliable. Uh, morphine product and this uh, some of these uh, chemist shops or pharmacies turned then into companies for example the the Merck company which is a global player still today was uh, a pharmacy in Darmstadt and they started producing reliable pills uh, and um, so basically the, the pharmaceutical industry as we know it today in terms of producing medicines and drugs originated or comes from Germany and Germany um, didn't have the same amount or the same quality of colonies that for example France had or Great Britain had or Belgium or Holland had or Portugal or Spain. Germany didn't have that. It wasn't a sea power. So while the other countries could import natural exotic stimulants uh, from overseas which were being uh, sought after in a in a, in a more and more modern society. Um Germany didn't have that opportunity and had to produce their own stimulants and their own uh medicines. So it was a um it was an a, a rewarding um area for the German uh companies to, because Germany always had a, had a big markets and then, so this is how it came about and um we can see this uh, developing all the way in into the twenties when uh, the Germans, uh, after losing the first world War, were very reluctant to sign that part of the Versailles treaty which um, want which was uh, which intended to stop um or regulate um the production of uh, opiates or of cocaine. Um, Merck had the patent for cocaine and was producing the best cocaine in the world using the annual harvest from Peru, which was brought to the Hamburg Harbor, completely legal, and then was turned into the famous Merck cocaine.
0: Yeah, no, that that was something I I didn't know about, uh, at least the specifics of it. And it it is amazing um, when you read about that, because today, uh, even though many pharmaceutical companies uh, have this sort of sheen of Research and development and you know ethical and 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 scientific and and uh empirical knowledge uh it's really interesting that so it's all based on the sort of initial sort of uh, isolation of intoxicants and 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 you know it, it it was an interesting i think fascinating uh topic, but to get back to the book we should we should talk about the connection between the Third Reich and, and how methamphetamine becomes the drug of choice for Blitzkrieg and, and, and for the society in general. Well... And, and, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, please.
1: Well, it's quite ironic that the Nazis who started off as uh, one of the first governments in the world um, to really wage a war on drugs, um, that during that regime uh, a new drug evolves which is methamphetamine um uh, being produced by um uh, Berlin company Temla being patented in uh, on October 31st 1937 and then flooding the market in 1938 and 39 and 1940 and so on um that during that uh, while those uh, anti-drug uh, people were ruling Germany this this drug methamphetamine which we now know of as a highly addictive and quite dangerous drug Becomes a t- completely legal drug of choice uh, of the German uh, people in their emerging uh, performance society.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean you mentioned it in the book. Is one of the reasons why methamphetamine was selected over benzodrine was because uh, America had the patent on it. I believe it was the Lilly Company that had the patent on it, and they had observed um the great athletic prowess of the american uh athletes at the 1936 olympics and that was why they decided to go for amphetamines because they they knew it was a performance enhancing drug very very early
1: yeah um, yeah after the olympics were people who were supposed to be racially inferior according to the nazi ideology were actually stronger than the german superhumans and running faster and uh... there was there was discussion in germany how could that happen and uh... An easy explanation was that the american athletes were using benzedrine uh... in fact there's no there's no proof that this actually took place this was a rumor and uh, i've spoken to quite a few sports historians who have tried to find out whether that really is true that the american team was on benzedrine during that those olympics and there's so far there's been no document found that actually proves this but um, the head of the Temla company, uh, knowing about the rumors, said, uh, "We have to produce a better amphetamine. We have to make uh, the super amphetamine, which then turned out to be methamphetamine, which actually is an, a, a Japanese invention. It was synthesized uh, in Tokyo for the first time, uh, quite a few decades earlier. But the Japanese never turned it into a product, and Temla company." actually did turn it into a product which they uh, labeled uh, or called Pervitine. And Pervitine came onto the market, as I said before, in late 37 and especially 38, it flooded the market. Mm -hmm. Um, Each Pervitine pill contained three milligrams of pure methamphetamine.
0: Yeah, wow. It it is, um, well, it's, it's, it's amazing, but it also seems sort of slightly predictable when you think about the modernity and and mechanization, a sort of German idealized mechanized army trying to move as fast as possible over France. It, it becomes sort of linked, you know, taking uh, amphetamines obviously makes the experience of, you know, movement over land much, much more, Um, probably exciting. I mean, it's like, can you talk about how Mm. the the link between um, amphetamine and sort of blitzkrieg and mechanized warfare of the 20th century? Because in this book, it seems to be inextricably linked those two ideas.
1: Yes, I mean, first, pervitin was produced by Temna for the civilian population because they thought everyone could use it. Everyone can take something to be uh, more alert on the job or to be more happy to doing the housework or to be more to be cleverer in a in a business meetings and, uh, or or to 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 hairdressers would, would use it and cut more hair i mean it was it was basically good for everyone and then the army discovered it because there was a professor called Ranke who was responsible for performance enhancement of the German army and he he thought this is good for the civilian population, not good, but if it if it works effectively for the civilian population, why wouldn't it work for a soldier and He conducted tests and he found out that it um, one reduces fear and two reduces the um need to sleep and those two um, those two effects uh, seemed highly uh, rewarding in in his mind for 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 soldiers and it, actually they were because. Um, the strategy against France was very much dependent on the time factor. Um, Germany needed to be to cross the Ardennes mountains within three days and three nights in order to reach the French border city of Sedan. And only if that would have happened in three days and three nights, the Germans would already be in the f- would would be able to enter to invade the French heartland, while most of the French uh, and British troops uh, were still. Um, positioned in the north of Belgium so um and the French and the british thought this is the Germans can never advance that fast through the aden mountains uh, they have to stop at night we'll be we'll be there we'll uh we'll we'll destroy their advance easy that they they never thought it would be possible to for an army a large army to move um for days and nights without stopping uh, but methamphetamine uh, uh, distributed in uh, with uh, thirty five million dosages, because that was the number that was uh, given out uh, just before the attack, or during the during those uh, weeks of the attack, uh, enabled the German army to do exactly that. So um, we shouldn't say that uh, methamphetamine is responsible for the German victory, the surprising German victory, but it certainly plays a key role in that victory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. Um, but but it, as as you sort of get to in the book is that these these um, advantages that the drug gives are only they're they're an illusion Cause, because in the first year or two of the war methamphetamine it is sort of linked with with German victory but then at, towards the end of the war it, it it becomes this darker and and far more um, I don't know. Far, far more unsettling uh, notion that that the the beginnings with, with methamphetamine sort of start to move into uh, morphine and heroin abuse. Uh, you mentioned that it not only in the German army but in Hitler's personal life himself. I mean, you know, uh, towards the ends of the book, it seems like Hitler's doctor is is propping him up with with every kind of drug imaginable I mean it's a big part of your book and I want you to talk about Dr. Morrell and and this sort of quacks science that's going on as well well we have to distinguish
1: very clearly between the army's use of methamphetamine which stayed methamphetamine um they didn't use any other drugs on a, on a mass scale except methamphetamine um but Later on in the war against Russia, methamphetamine just didn't work anymore. It was a it's a it's a it's a good drug for a short war, but not for a prolonged war. I spoke to a medical officer, uh, a very old gentleman now, who gave out heavy teens still in Stalingrad, and he said he just it, it just didn't help anymore because the war against Russia was uh, was lasting for uh, over three years. Um, so the methamphetamine proved uh, not so successful towards the end of the german war effort um hitler's drug taking is a completely different chapter i suppose or part uh, or or aspect of the of the whole story and i dedicate the third part of my book to um hitler's uh, in- incredible drug career um and this is quite surprising because the nazi propaganda um not only said that All drugs are bad, and the German, the the, the National National Socialist German, obviously doesn't take any drugs. um, uh, But is 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 a a good fellow that uh, would not take uh, such a bad thing. Uh, It 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 especially stressed that fact uh, on on Hitler himself. Hitler was always portrayed as uh, that leader, that clean leader who does nothing else than work for his people and uh he has no private life he's not married he doesn't drink alcohol he doesn't eat meat um so hitler was this kind of this kind of health health leader in a way um and in fact most of these claims are true until 1941 um but uh, the problem starts earlier on in 1936 when hitler meets uh, a doctor called Theo Morell um a Berlin doctor who specializes in giving vitamin shots and uh, uh and has a a good a prax- practice here in, in in Berlin um treating uh, celebrities um with his vitamin shots and um Hitler also liked these vitamin shots and he believed that he wouldn't wouldn't ever get ill again he would never have a cold um um and he would he he appointed Morell as his personal physician and the, the two men Uh, ...spent every day together and uh, Morel gave Hitler one to two injections a day. The first five years, truly mostly with these vitamins that kept Hitler healthy and happy. Um, But then in 1941, in the fall when the war against Russia uh, turns uh, difficult for Germany, Hitler becomes ill for the first time... Um, he has a, the so-called Russian fever. He's in bed. He can't attend the military briefing. And he says, says to Morel, give me something stronger than vitamins. I have to go. I have to speak to the generals. I can't let them make their own decisions. And Morel gives him for the first time an opiate, uh, dolantine, and uh, also a hormone, hormone injection, kind of a, a doping, a typical doping steroid uh, injection. And it works on Hitler. And Hitler, um, likes that feeling of being sick in bed, not able to move uh, and, and getting an, a strong injection and being able to get up an hour later and, and tell his journals what's supposed to be going on. So this is kind of a turning point And um, Hitler more and more then asks for stronger injections. He's not happy anymore with just vitamins. Um, and Morel, who still gives Hitler his daily one or two injections, changes what he actually gives Hitler. And, um, This um, gets more and more severe or intense or insane until from summer 1943 on, he gets more and more opiates intravenously. And uh, in the second half of 1944, uh, when the war really gets into its decisive end phase, uh, Hitler takes um, so many opiates on a a sometimes two-day interval, that uh we have to call this uh we have to we have to consider that he might uh, that we might be uh, able to call him a junkie in the end
0: mm-hmm. yeah, no in, in your book, you have uh, some great uh visual sources where you, you show dr morell's um uh you know his, his his memos for for patient A as is Hitler is known yeah. um, and uh it, every other day. And, and, and towards the end of the war, more than that, even. Um, and and you sort of talk about how, um, you know, there, there's there been a lot of talk about Hitler having um, uh, Parkinson's disease at the end of his life. But you say that it's possible that he might have just merely been in withdrawal or, or in some sort of medicated state that it, at least exacerbated these symptoms.
1: Yeah, I don't think that, I mean it's obvious that his health deteriorated and uh, I don't think it's I think it's too easy to just call it Parkinson's because there's no proof that it was actually Parkinson's but there's proof that he took uh, huge amounts uh, of very hard drugs Um. a uh, in a very um, in a way that that cannot be healthy because he takes very different very different drugs with very different effects uh, he mixes them and, and Morel had no clue of how these uh, very potent substances that he administered Hitler over 80 substances that uh, he shot into Hitler's veins how they would interact so it's no surprise that um, Hitler Hitler's health uh, uh really deteriorates uh, towards the end of the war and um We can also see that starting January 1st, 1945, um, when Hitler moves into that last phase of uh, hiding or or living in the bunker in Berlin, in the center of Berlin, um, suddenly these drugs stop and um, that's when um, heavy withdrawal symptoms have to set in. And if we look at Hitler's uh, physical behavior, the tremor... um, the way he looks the way he behaves i think it's um, it's more than likely that he was suffering from cold turkey then again mm. i wouldn't i wouldn't say he, he he that he didn't have parkinson's he might have had parkinson's on top of that i mean he he was certainly a physical and mental wreck in the end
0: well it's interesting also that morrell's fortunes go with hitler's fortunes as well i mean at a certain point they become linked as well. You talk about how Morell's wife was very hesitant about getting involved with the top leadership of the Third Reich because she was afraid for his life, and she was afraid for her life, and uh, he seemed like he was tempted to you know, live this grander lifestyle. You talk about at one point where Morell is offered uh, house in Berlin in a very fashionable neighborhood that he would never have been able to afford mm. if he had just been a, a regular doctor.
1: Yeah, Morell was a typical opportunist in a way, or, I mean, maybe it's even understandable how he reacted, because when he was offered the job in thirty six by Hitler to become personal physician, this was like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, Hitler was... Revered by the German people, um, there was no war yet. Um, he was a very powerful uh, leader, and uh, so for Morel, it was a huge career jump. Um, his wife said, "We don't need that. We have a. We ha- you have a, a, a good uh, um, doctor's office here in Berlin. Why? Why do you do that? Uh, we won't spend much time together anymore." Which was true because Hitler really tied Morel onto him. They became like a symbiotic uh, pair, and. Uh, in fact, there's no one that spent more time with Hitler than uh, Morel, which is which is another fact that historians have overlooked, uh, because they have, in a way, also overlooked Morel for all this time. And, and Morel had this tremendous impact on Hitler, because they spent every day together, and um, they exchanged, they had quite an intense exchange through these, uh, through these syringes, through these injections. Mm-hmm. So Morel really is a fascinating... Absolutely fascinating uh, character that, uh, that 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 gives us uh, a very interesting look at the inner into the inner rooms of this uh, of this regime. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting too that as as the uh, the third Reich waxes, Morel's own pharmaceutical and medical empire sort of waxes as well. You talk about how uh, Morell needed for his hormone injections, he needed like um, basically access to animal parts. Like he takes over um, like an American built slaughterhouse in the Ukraine and he needs it to take all these, um, you know, uh, you know bits of, of animal organs or whatever to get hormones and stuff. And there's it's a very ghoulish aspect to it as well. To make this sort of quack medicine work, he needs he needs these bodies, which I thought was very very disturbing.
1: Yeah, this is a chapter that's called Slaughterhouse Ukraine, and I think it's one of the darkest uh, chapters in the book. Um, but um, it's also a very interesting one because um, we can really see how Morel thrives in his position and how he uses his position as the personal physician of the so-called Führer. Um, to attain the monopoly on all the slaughtered animals in all of the uh, abattoirs in the Ukraine, um, taking all the organs, uh, the, the 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 valuable organs of these uh, slaughtered animals uh, out and and ship them in. Army trains up uh, back to his uh factory um in uh occupied uh, Czechoslovakia where he then produces um his uh, hormone concoctions uh, his liver uh his liver juice that was then supplied to the German army and uh, I mean he he became quite a rich man um um, which was always his goal. I mean, he, um, he 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 saw, he looked around, and he saw that everyone being close to Hitler really profits from this regime, and really gets rich and powerful. So he wanted to do the same, and he found a way by by constructing this kind of one-man pharmaceutical empire. Um, it's 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 quite a, a crazy and fascinating story, actually.
0: Mm, yeah, no, it's it's one of the the more interesting aspects of of the book for sure. Um, yeah, no, uh, if just just switching gears for a moment, like there there's a there's so many good little um, bits in this book. I really enjoyed. Um, from the, the the visual sources in the book are fantastic. There there are so many ones that are amazing, and and uh, one of the ones that that is is almost most haunting. Uh, is uh, the uh, Perbent chocolate? So there's this. Uh, I forget what page it's on, but there's a, a photograph of a German woman getting chocolates from, you know, her lover, or her, her, her children, or whatever, and they're just filled with methamphetamine. <laughs> and it's interesting. Ge- it, it hits the gender uh, aspect as well. The sort of gendered a- aspect of, of you know, a woman's role, but also it, it, it is. There's something like they all seem so okay with it, you know, or, or at least the marketing seems like very okay with it. Oh. Um, what? How did you end up like putting the visual sources you decided in into the book itself? Because you picked so many great ones, um, we're actually sort of fortunate that there are so many visual sources in the text.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, I did a very long research and uh, I found many interesting uh, visual visual pieces. For example, that ad for that Hildebrand chocolate that was the brand name. Mm-hmm. Uh, the slogan was, Hildebrand chocolate's always a delight. And uh, I mean, mm-hmm. for, just from that picture you see with, with, from that German Fräulein holding in her manicured fingers uh, a piece of chocolate which is laced with 13 milligrams of methamphetamine, it just tells a lot and it just gives you a sense of how normal uh it was to use methamphetamine in the in that in that society um so i I think t- for me it was very important to include uh those images and the books being um translated currently into twenty six languages and unfortunately some uh foreign editions uh have decided not to uh reprint those visual uh th- those 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 visuals uh but Blitz, uh, the American version, does uh, show all the the visual material that uh, I've selected, and I think it really adds. Um, it really adds to to the
0: book, and so I don't know if that yeah. answers your question. Yeah, no, it, no, it does. I I, I just I felt that we we're fortunate to have yeah. so many rich uh, visual sources. Um, just getting towards the end of the book, I I, I want to get. Um, uh, this this uh, on here as well. You talk about the use of child soldiers and the Kriegsmarine, yeah. and you mention two really interesting things: uh, that the Kriegsmarine's hands were not completely clean, which is, a, I guess, a, a semi-mythologized history about the German Navy, but also the fact that. Uh, the Germans used child soldiers, and in, in I think in our minds, in, in contemporary in our contemporary world, we, we sort of confine child soldiers as as maybe something to the distant past or or some you know remote part of of uh, Asia or Africa or some insurgency or something. But uh, there's a point in in this book where uh, the Kreuzmer decided it's it's a good idea to pump these children full of. Methamphetamine and then send them out on suicide submarines. Can you talk a little bit about that chapter and how, how you get the research for that done, and, and uh, um, how that worked?
1: Um, the the sea battle against um, the West was basically lost for the German Navy. All their big submarines had been sunk, and so the the last straw of hope for them was to construct mini submarines, which would um, be driven by one or two uh, soldiers, and the idea was that they would um, approach the big British and American ships um, uh, unseen, undetected by uh, radar, and then send the torpedo and, and sink them. Um, but in order to do that, uh, these mini submarines had to be uh an uh, action for uh that was calculated about five days and five nights without stopping and since uh often it was they were only manned by one person um it was considered impossible for anyone to stay awake that long and if you fell asleep in those things uh you might uh, drown or it wasn't wasn 't possible to to it it just didn't work if if you would sleep um so they were looking for drugs that would keep these um very young soldiers um um, awake for this uh, long time and uh, Pervitin only worked for two days and two nights. That was kind of the, the average. Where it, it would keep you awake. Um, so they were looking for new drugs actually. They were looking for um, a wonder drug. Um, they were testing different drug combinations. They would uh, make pills laced with cocaine, methamphetamine and oikodal, Hitler's favorite opiate Put all of these three together to form a drug which was called D9, uh, drug 9. Now that was uh, the most potent of all. Uh, but then they, they found that these young soldiers went completely, uh, mad when they took this, these strong drugs and then were alone, uh, riding through the, the depth of the ocean. Just, uh, it just shows you, um how Desperate, the German war effort in the end had become because this is a development of 1944 and 1945. And a very dark and uh, aspect of that hunt for the wonder drug uh, was that they used the navy. Used they basically the navy hired um, um, a. Uh, um, a group of prisoners of the concentration camp of Sachsenhausen, which is the concentration camp north of Berlin, um, they they basically paid the SS that they could use uh, these uh, these prisoners in in that concentration camp, a group of prisoners, to test uh, their new drug combinations and uh, in order to find out which is the most potent uh, of these new uh, types of wonder drugs they were trying to develop. So. Um, the navy which after the war always said we were not really the bad guys The SS was, the SS was bad and uh, but we were we had our clean uniforms we were just fighting on in the oceans this was a different it's kind of a myth that the german navy was uh, the only uh, army part that uh, didn't commit war crimes uh, i i discover in in blitz it's certainly not true um, because they actually um abused concentration camp inmates in order to test their new drug combinations for their insane missions to turn the war effort uh in the seas around. Um and this uh this is a this is an important part of 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 Blitz and I researched this together with an expert from the current German army uh who's an expert on that specific topic and I studied the archives in the concentration camp of Sachsenhausen where all this uh, material is still being um, present and archived. And when I presented that to Hans Momsen, the leading German historian on National Socialism, who basically knows everything about National Socialism, he said "This is he's never heard of this before. Um, so we can see that even historians who are knowledgeable, who should be knowledgeable about all aspects, are absolutely not knowledgeable about all aspects, because it's simply impossible to know everything um, and and so also this chapter uh, of uh, of very sinister uh, drug abuse by the German uh, navy in a concentration camp uh, close to Berlin had not properly been uh, exposed uh, or examined before
0: mm-hmm. um, just just one more thing I want to talk about is uh, ersatz and and the fact that and, and you mentioned this in the book that Uh, Methadone, which is, as we know, commonly prescribed uh, for those uh, addicted to heroin uh, in the United States and and Europe, I presume as well, uh, was developed by uh, IG Farben as a substitute for for morphine because they were afraid that they would run out of morphine for, um, you know, pain control for injured soldiers. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you found that out? Because I thought that was a really interesting part of the book as well.
1: Well, there was a point in the war where Germany was cut off from the opium fields of uh, Morocco, but especially also of Afghanistan. And uh, there was... Göring was afraid... Göring, being a morphine addict himself, was afraid that there would be a time when um, there wouldn't be enough natural um, morphine available. So he was... um, He was... uh, Initiating this project to develop a um, completely synthesized painkiller, which uh, actually was developed, was it was somehow too late in the war effort to mass produce it, and then which which is the methadone that we know today. And then when America um, invaded Nazi Germany, um, they took that patent as a war booty and. then we're able to um, mass-produce methadone as we know it today. Oh,
0: interesting. Uh, Okay. Um, Well, uh, Norman, what are you working on now? Are you working on another history, or are you going back to uh, writing novels, or what are you doing now?
1: Well, um, right after I finished Blitz, I took up... uh, an uh, project, a novel that I started ten years ago, which is set in the eighteenth century. Um in a huge swamp area east of Berlin where King Frederick the Great um, um decides to drain that very swamp and turn it into farmland. Um so it is a this is a historical uh, novel, a, a murder mystery because uh in fact uh the most important engineer of that project um died of mysterious causes, uh, and in my novel I examine, uh, through a detective, an, an early form of a detective, uh, why this man uh, got killed, and uh, so I, I, it's about uh, resistance against uh, this, this land reform project of King Frederick, it's a very different, um, very different project, but still uh, meticulously uh, researched, I would say, I would hope. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I it know it come uh, out
1: actually in the fall in Germany uh, under the title of "The Equation of Life," and hopefully, then will also come out uh, in other languages. Um, hopefully, two thousand eighteen.
0: Okay, Norman. Well, um, I think we've taken a little uh, enough of your time. Up. Um, no problem. Thanks for talking with me.
1: Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. I'm very happy to speak about lips with you.